Good morning. If you have your Bible, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 18. Soon uh, we will stop in Luke. This is actually the third time we picked up in Luke, and we'll come back to it eventually. But for the rest of the spring, spring weather, and summer will be in Habakkuk and then Nehemiah. So we'll be looking at those books for the coming months. Let's ask God to guide our time. That we could sing that we are loved by a good father. Is not only biblical truth and experiential reality, but Father, we're so thankful for it. That you would love us in the midst of our messes, our sins, our disregard for your truth and for you, and even our busyness of life where we forget you. That you love us and you care for us, loved by you, good, good Father. We're thankful. And as we talk about you as a good father in Luke 18, we pray, Lord, that we would be reminded again and again of your goodness, your accessibility, your approachableness. You are good. Give us that understanding this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. I love learning about women and men who have been used by God, who love the Lord and also love our country. It was November of 2016, last November, that a family that is uh, very dear to Betty Ann and myself, they called me up, not my wife, you'll know why in a moment, but they called me up and asked if I wanted to join them at the movie theater. I said, absolutely, and I saw a movie that I loved, and I'd recommend it to you unless you're squeamish about blood. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. I loved Hacksaw Ridge. It just moved my heart. It's about a man who loves God, a man who is filled with prayer, a man who is reliant upon God. It's about private first class Desmond T. Doss. He's actually the only recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, also serving in our armed forces as a conscientious objector. Now, I don't share his convictions on the idea of conscientious objector, but I want to be like this man. This man is a man of prayer, a man of the Lord, a man of conviction. If you recall the movie or you know the story of his life, you know that he volunteered to serve in the military, but he refused to wear a sidearm. He refused to hold a rifle, to shoot a rifle. He would not bear arms. That didn't go very well in the army. His captain, Captain Glover, tried to have him court-martialed, tried to have him drummed out of the 77th, but it didn't work. He often would be found in the corner praying. And some of his co-workers, his 
co-soldiers would throw their boots at him, throw their helmets at him, interrupt his time of prayer. But he would continue to pray. He once said to Captain Glover, don't consider me a coward. At the very time in which you're taking life, I'll be right by your side and I'll be saving life. Fast forward to May 2nd to 5th, 1945, Okinawa. The 77th was commanded to scale a ridge up to a flat place nicknamed Hacksaw Ridge. Up there were a number of tunnels, a number of machine guns very carefully placed by the Imperial forces. They had figured out where their artillery should be laid. They had figured out where their mortar would be effective and where they could do the most damage. And the 77th part of it went up that ridge and they faced a torrent of machine gun fire. It was withering and many, many Americans lost their lives. In fact, it got to the point where the only thing logical was a mass retreat. Certainly they wanted to take the dead with them. Certainly they wanted to take the wounded with them. But it was so withering that there was chaos. And as they went back down the ridge, back down to the ground below, many, many soldiers who were wounded were left above. And Private First Class Doss refused to go with the men. Without a sidearm, without a gun, without any protection, 200 yards behind enemy forces. He spent the entire afternoon, evening, and night caring for wounded, mostly American, but occasionally imperial. He would do all that he could medically for them. He would then drag them to the edge of the ridge. He would tie a rope around their waist, and one by one, he would lower them down to startled medics below who could not believe that the wounded in the middle of the night were being lowered to the ground where they could receive medical help. He is credited with saving the lives of 75 Americans while 200 yards behind enemy lines by himself, unarmed, throughout the night. And throughout that entire thing, he uttered a prayer to the Lord. He said, Lord, how would you finish that prayer? Lord, maybe spare me, save me, get me out of here. Lord, give me one more. Give me one more. One more soldier's life. Give me one more. He's a man of incredible prayer and a right deserving man of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Today we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about persistent prayer. We're going to pick up in Luke 18. I want to read verses 1 to 8. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. 
And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, that is a Christ follower, who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man, a messianic term from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This parable, as you probably know, only occurs in the Gospel of Luke. And in this parable, it's very clear what the theme is. Be persistent in prayer. Pray always, verse 1, and do not lose heart. It's the clear theme of the text. And yet, if truth be cold, sometimes you and I pray and we do lose heart. I find this particularly disheartening because if I were to evaluate my spiritual walk, I would tell you that one of my strengths is prayer. And if one of my strengths is prayer, and I'm not particularly strong at prayer, well, what does that say about my weaknesses? And Jesus says, be persistent in prayer. Keep on praying. Do not lose heart. And yet, if you're like me, sometimes you do exactly that. We're not all that consistent, at least as we ought to be, when it comes to prayer. And I think to myself, what causes me not to pray? I've thought of a few things. I'll mention three. Misplaced priorities. Think about life. You and I schedule so many things in life. We schedule coming to church today. We schedule going to work. We schedule when we eat. We schedule recreation. We schedule all sorts of things. Should we not schedule prayer? One of the things that's so exciting to me, being on staff at Highland, is at 9 in the morning, across the intercom of my phone, one of the gals say, we're gathering in the workroom for time of prayer. So every day at 9 o'clock, we gather for a time of prayer. We schedule prayer. But misplaced priorities cause me not to schedule prayer personally. A second thing that I think causes me not to schedule prayer is laziness. Laziness. You see, you and I live in a time period when we are so enamored by technology, we're so enamored by instant gratification, that sometimes prayer doesn't seem to work for us. We pray and we fall asleep. We pray and our mind wanders. We pray and we lose focus. Kudos for honesty, but God says pray and do not lose heart. Be consistent in prayer. I think prayer is hard work, and I ought to think of it as work, 
And when I don't and I think it's going to be the most exciting time of the day, then maybe I get lazy and I lose heart. You know, when I go out in the golf course and I hit that white ball, I don't lose heart. I hit it in the woods. I hit it in the ponds. I hit it in the sand. If I prayed more, I might hit it in the fairway. But it's very easy for me to play golf. It's more difficult for me to pray. I get lazy. Misplaced priorities. Laziness. And then that third one is losing heart. We say, Lord, prayer doesn't seem to work for me. I've been praying for a long time and I'm still single. Why, Lord, haven't you sent me a mate? And we lose heart. Lord, I've been praying for a child or a grandchild, and that child or grandchild is still wayward. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? And we lose heart. We think of an addiction in our life, whether to pornography or perhaps an addiction to a substance, and we say, Lord, take this desire from me, and yet it's still a struggle, and we lose heart. We say, Lord, there's too much month left, not enough paycheck left. I pray that you would open doors you haven't, and we begin to lose heart. Jesus knows that until he tells us to be persistent in prayer, not to lose heart, and to continue, and he gives us a parable to encourage our hearts. The parable has been variously called the parable of the persistent widow, the parable of the unjust judge. I would say it's the parable of the God who hears and answers. And in this parable, Jesus begins with a Hebrew literary device. It's a device from the lesser to the greater. He uses the lesser, an unjust judge, to contrast with the greater the just judge. And let's be honest, this unjust judge, he's a piece of work. He's a mess. The text tells us once about him and once in his own words that he neither fears God nor does he fear man. He's a violator of the greatest and the second greatest command. You remember in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, it says a lawyer came to Jesus to test him. And the lawyer asked, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your all your mind. For this is the first and the great commandment. And the second is likened unto the first. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And yet this this judge is a violator of both. He tells us, and the text tells us, he doesn't fear God, he violates the greatest commandment, and he doesn't love man, he violates the second greatest commandment. Interestingly enough, the Bible tells us what a judge ought to be like. I think of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles Chapter 19, 6 and 7, this is the king talking to some judges. And regardless of one's political affiliation, I think we can say amen to this. This would be good for all of our judges. And Jehoshaphat said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, 
Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So I think if we think about the federal government, whether we think about district courts, the courts of appeal, or the Supreme Court, we would like judges who fear God. We would like judges who show no partial, who are, who are impartially, they, they don't have bias towards individuals who do not take any bribes. These are the kind of judges you and I would like. But that's not the judge in our text. That's not the judge in the parable. This judge neither fears God or cares for man. And yet this judge finds himself against a formidable opponent. She's a persistent opponent. She's a gal who comes over and over and over again. She's a model of what persistent prayer, as we come not to the lesser judge, but the greater judge, our persistence in prayer to God. Now, quite frankly, she's an unlikely hero. Good hermeneutics, good interpretation of the Bible, tries to understand what the original listener heard rather than what we hear in the 21st century. We have very formidable widows in the 21st century. We have powerful and prestigious widows in the 21st century. But when you hear the word widow in first century Israel, you're thinking of a woman without power, without prestige, without opportunity, no one to protect her. She is utterly without defense except for the Lord. And yet she is the formidable one who comes over and over again to the unjust judge who neither cares for God or cares for man. She shows moxie. She shows persistence. She's a model of what it ought to be like in my prayer life to the Lord. As I thought about this kind of persistence, I thought about a Colorado rancher. I read about him in Leadership Magazine. This particular Colorado rancher had National Geographic, but he was almost to the end of his subscription. He decided he would not renew, and so every time he got a renewal notice, he just threw it out. It was junk mail to him. But then there was a little bit of problem with the computers for National Geographic, and they sent him a few extra renewal notices. They actually sent him the number is, uh, I can't remember now, 9,734 separate renewal notices. He finally sent back a check and said, I give up, you win. That's persistence. And that's the type of persistence that God wants in our prayer life. And so we read in verse 5, that the unjust judge, because of her persistence, gives the woman what she asks for. But he's the lesser, and remember this is a literary device from the lesser to the greater, and we who are Christ's followers, we who are the elect, who are chosen before the foundation of the world by God, we come to the Lord, and we pray, and we don't have an unjust judge, we have the supreme judge, the one who will right all wrongs, whether temporally or eternally, or both ways, God will right all wrongs. And this ought to bring encouragement to our hearts. And it ought to be a warning to those who 
push down the least of these. It's a warning to those who push down the least of these because if one is involved in injustice, we need to know that God will bring justice. He will right all wrongs. And if we have been the recipient of injustice, it warms one's heart because we know that the king is coming. And when the king comes, he will right all wrongs. Having unpacked the text a little bit, let's conclude with some thoughts. We'll start in verse 8. Jesus asks a profound question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Let's remember our context. Remember that chapter breaks are given to us by those who edit the Bible so that we can navigate corporately. They're not part of the original manuscripts. And so what precedes this text is what we looked at last week A text talking about the return of Jesus Christ. And we noted last week that many people on their lips say, When, Lord? When are you going to come? And we even saw that while he was on earth, Jesus, plus the angels, are unassured. But now he's in heaven, he knows. So Jesus knows he's returning. He knows when he's returning. He knows the question on our lips is, when are you coming? But he asks a more important question. Understand that when Jesus asks questions, he's not holding his breath waiting for the answer. He already knows the answer. He's asking questions that we might ponder the answer within our heart. And the question he asks is this, when the Son of Man comes, will I find faith? And we say, well, what does that have to do with the text? The text is about prayer. You've given us a parable on prayer. What are you talking about faith? Well, apparently, faith and faithfulness and prayer are all tied together. Apparently, Christ's followers demonstrate our faith. We demonstrate our faithfulness through our persistence in prayer. Is that the only way we demonstrate it? No. But it's the way highlighted in this text. And Jesus is asking a question that I might ponder it in my heart. Am I demonstrating faith? Am I demonstrating faithfulness to Christ by being persistent in prayer? Or have I allowed misplaced priorities? Laziness. Losing heart to push my prayer life away and to focus on lesser things. Praying Christians need to live out 1 Thessalonians 5, the 17th verse, pray without ceasing. What does that mean to pray without ceasing? It means to go through life, to go through the day with an attitude of prayer. It means to to be going into a meeting at work and realizing that People could get hot in this meeting, including oneself. And so we say, Lord, help me to keep in control. Help me to keep my tongue. Help me to honor you well. It could be the mother or father of a precocious two-year-old. And the two-year-old has done the same naughty thing 30 times, and it's only 11 in the morning. And you say, Lord, help me to understand this is a two-year-old. Help me 
to nurture the heart of this two-year-old as you would have me do. And so we go through the day praying. We say, Lord, there's a temptation ahead. I'm asking for the breastplate of righteousness. I'm asking the fruit of self-control that you would allow me to turn from the temptation and towards righteousness. As I think of prayer, and I've mentioned this a number of times, I often pray Scripture back to the Lord because I'm more confident in His words than in mine. And so in my prayers, I often start very often with Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. I follow the acronym CATS. I start with confession because if I'm not confessed up, God doesn't promise to listen to the prayer. And then I go to A, adoring, and then T, thanking, and then S, supplication. It's just the pattern that I have found helpful in my prayer life. I might pray for wisdom and say, Lord, you tell me in James 1, 5, and 6 that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask for wisdom by faith. And then I realize that, that I'm not really very faith-filled. And so I remember Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. And I ask him to increase my faith. And I might remember John 15, 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I'm totally dependent on the Lord. I can do all sorts of things that have no eternal significance. But unless God shows up, that's all it will be. No eternal significance. We are dependent upon the Lord. Might pray, as I often do, for the armor of God and ask for the shoes shod with the gospel of peace and the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God and the the shield of faith to put out the fiery darts of the evil one and the helmet of salvation. Or we might pray for the fruit of the Spirit, his love and joy and peace, patience, his goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I might pray for my kids that they would honor the Lord. And my grandkids, if God would give them to us and and we just remember these sentence prayers and we pray back Scripture to God because he wants us, he, he calls us to be persistent in prayer. And when we are persistent in prayer, many of us have enjoyed moments where we've seen God do something. God show up. God act in a way that only God can do. A private first class Desmond moment where he's 200 yards behind the line and yet God supernaturally hides him from the enemy and he does God's work. But there's other times we pray and it doesn't seem to go the way we want. And scripture talks about that as well. Let's look at a couple reasons why that might not be. Why God might not answer my prayer the way I want. Some of it might have to do with timing. I'm impatient and God is not. I wish he were, but he is not. 
one of those passages that is difficult for all of us is 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact. I often overlook this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. I have impatient timing. God has perfect timing. Then there's the persistence. Sometimes I don't have because I'm not persistent. I'm not like the widow. I'm not living out Luke 18, 1 to 8. James talks about this as well. He says in James 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. God wants us to come to him persistently with righteous prayers, and he wants us to ask. A third reason is God may have a greater purpose in mind. I actually love this. God's purpose is greater than ours in so many cases. And I think of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul's like way up here and like I'm like way down there. Paul plants 60 churches. Uh, I planted one and pastored three. Paul wrote 13 books of Holy Scripture and combined we're like a big goose egg. You know, he's way up here. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he prays multiple times that God would remove a thorn from him. Some kind of physical affliction, maybe glaucoma, maybe something else. He prays it, and God says no. And in verse 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, and your weakness will be made perfect. In other words, you need this, Paul. And so I'm not going to remove it. And if God does that to Paul because there's a greater good in mind, he does it to us as well. But I got an even greater example than Paul. The father said no to the son. Did we ever think of that? Think of the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. I think it's verse 39. Jesus said, take this cup from me. In other words, I don't want to go to the cross, and I really don't want Jeff's sins placed on me. The one who is without sin becomes sin for us. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. The son prays to the father, and the father has a greater purpose at that moment, and he places the sin of us on Christ on the cross. Because the greater purpose was redemption for all who would believe and receive him. A fourth reason that sometimes our prayers don't go the way we want is because there's unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives. I've already read uh, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. Solomon put it this way. In Proverbs 28, the ninth verse, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If we're not in obedience to the word of God, our prayer is an abomination. It's an affront to the, word, to the ears of the Lord. There's a command in uh, 1 Peter 3, 7, or a passage in 1 Peter 3, 7, 
It goes like this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker, I think it actually means more vulnerable vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And sometimes we pray and there's no impact with our prayer life. And it might be, husbands, that we are not living in an understanding way and showing honor to our wives. And therefore, the Lord says, I'm really not going to listen to your prayers. It's kind of a scary thing. And finally, James reminds us that when we pray, we need to pray with faith. And when we pray with a lack of faith, it probably is going to be not a powerful prayer. Let me read James 1, 6 to 8. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. And so if you look at the bulletin insert, you'll see the following. Prayer is to be persistent. That's the theme of Luke 18. Prayer is answered best in God's timing rather than my imperfect timing, 2 Peter 3. Prayer is asking God to give us his best rather than our short-term goals or short-sighted goals, 2 Corinthians 12. Prayer that is effective comes from lips that are confessed up and prayed up, Proverbs 28 and Psalm 66 and 1 Peter 3. And prayer should be accompanied by faith, James 1, 6 to 8. So let's you and I take a moment and pray to the good God who hears and acts. Father God, you are good. You are very good. You're the good God who hears. You're the good God who acts. You're not like the unjust judge, but you're the one that brings justice. In fact, Lord, if we're honest, the text doesn't even talk about all sorts of prayer requests. It talks about bringing justice. And you'll do that temporally and eternally. And we thank you that far from being a deistic God, the God who creates and then leaves us to our own. You're the God that is intimately involved in our lives, who invites us to pray, encourages us to pray, encourages us to be persistent in prayer. Help us not to allow misplaced priorities or laziness or losing heart to get in the way of our prayer lives. And fill us with prayer that is confessed up and repented up. Prayer that is filled with faith and expectation. That calls upon your perfect timing rather than our imperfect timing. And trust you. Father, help us to be individuals, families, a church that prays. And to expectantly believe that you respond. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.